week on the Higher Ed Shift, I sit down with Tina Fernandez, the Executive Director at Achieve Atlanta. We discuss their vision to make Atlanta a city where race and income no longer predict post-secondary success and upward mobility. Most importantly, we discuss how they are putting their mission to help Atlanta public school students access, afford, and earn post-secondary credentials into action and the results they have seen. As part of this, the discussion turns to specific ways to engage with students and build trusting relationships, helping them to see a path to college graduation and reduce the traumatic nature of the funding journey for our low-income students. Let's jump right into the discussion with Tina. Welcome to today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift. I am Amy Glynn, VP of Student Financial Success at Campus Logic. And today I'm joined by Tina Fernandez, Executive Director with Achieve Atlanta. Thanks for joining me, Tina. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Hey, I'm so excited. You are our final guest as we wrap out Scholarship Month. And I know that Achieve Atlanta is so much more than a scholarship organization, but I would love to have you introduce yourself to listeners and tell us a little bit about Achieve Atlanta. Sure. So my name is Tina Fernandez and I'm the founding executive director of Achieve Atlanta. And Achieve Atlanta is an organization whose vision is that Atlanta be a city where race and income no longer predict post-secondary success and upward mobility. And the the way that we came about was that back in 2014, um, a group of visionary and concerned leaders in the city were thinking about post-secondary degree attainment for Atlanta public school students. We had members from the Community Foundation of Greater Atlanta, from the district and from one of our largest um, funders in the city. And they commissioned a study to take a look at what was the state of degree attainment for students graduating from Atlanta public schools. And at the time, what the research showed was that only about one in seven students who went to APS were projected to earn a post-secondary degree of any kind within six years of their high school graduation. So roughly about 14%. And and when you consider that, you know, the projections were that by 2025, 65% of the jobs in Georgia will require some sort of post-secondary degree. When you look at the fact that um, Atlanta has the the unfortunate distinction of being the city with the lowest rate of social mobility um, and one of the cities with the highest income inequality, um, you know, and that post-secondary degree attainment is so tied to an ability to actually have a living wage, a family sustaining wage, then we have like a real problem on our hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was the genesis of Achieve Atlanta. We we were um, born out of the idea that we wanted to dramatically increase the number of APS students to earn a post-secondary credential or degree. And so we do that by um, focusing on the entire pipeline. Um, We have initiatives on college access and and partner with the district. We Um, have the Achieve Atlanta Scholarship, which is the largest need-based scholarship in the state of Georgia, and and really help students 
afford a college education. And then um, we focus on the success side by supporting students once they're in college to help them persist and complete to earn a degree. So we have multiple partners. We have many different uh, collaboratives working on a variety of of issues within that pipeline. Um, But at the end of the day, we're focused on just making sure that more students can have a choice and opportunity feel lived at life and just really passionate about the work that we do. It's so amazing and and so necessary. I just I wonder have a lot of other cities or municipalities kind of looked at data and looked at the the challenges that their residents are facing in the same way that you guys have in Atlanta. This feels really unique to me. So the good news is that more and more are doing it. And mm-hmm. um, I think that the conversation around post-secondary degree and then workforce, especially now all the challenges that we've had that have sort of been like a light has shown upon the workforce challenges with COVID. Yeah. I think that more and more places are thinking about these issues. What I think is unique about Achieve Atlanta is that, you know, we are, we are an intermediary and we are designed to be that facilitator across sectors and to really help connect the dots and to take sort of a a bird's eye view of what's happening. And I think it's really necessary because every sector is focused on their, on their work, rightly so. And every organization that serves students is focused on their student population, but you need, I think it's really helpful to bring that added capacity of helping to sort of like look across the system and then make connections and facilitate work. And, you know, because people are busy, other organizations are busy with what they're doing. We are seeing more and more cities trying to take this place-based cross-sector collaborative approach. And one of the things I'm really proud of is that a lot of them are reaching out to us at Achieve Atlanta to learn about, you know, some of the work that we've done, where we've made mistakes, how we've learned from them, you know, what are some of the promising practices that we're seeing. And we're really excited to share everything we've learned along the journey. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Anything that you guys can do to continue to spread the word and and like you're saying, share what has and hasn't worked so that that new um, municipalities can put this into place quickly, if that's possible, and more more effectively. And when you're talking about that that connection of sectors i think for me that's been one of the biggest things that we've been missing is there seems to be a pretty big disconnect between k12 and higher education and you know the alignment of even we've seen the alignment of high school graduation requirements to state entrances yeah. um requirements at colleges and we need to do something to pull those two groups together. And it sounds like you guys have been facilitating that some in Atlanta. We're trying to, yeah. And what we're helping to do is point out a lot of the gaps, right? Mm -hmm. And so, for example, just to take one issue, Georgia is one of two states that does not have need-based aid. And we have something called the HOPE Scholarship but it is a merit-based scholarship program that's administered by the state and students have to have a a certain GPA and certain scores on their SAT or ACT to be able to access the HOPE scholarship. And what what other organizations have found is that the majority of students in Georgia who get the HOPE scholarship are middle and higher income students. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Then we looked at the data for Atlanta Public Schools, and what we found was that only a third of APS students going to college actually qualify for the Hope Scholarship. And then once they have it, many of them lose it after their first year because you know we're dealing primarily with a low-income, low first-gen population. And if you don't keep a certain GPA your first semester, first year, you lose that aid. And then yeah. that can have like all kinds of negative effects. So we have helped to sort of like, elevate that issue and and sort of shine a light on that reality and then design a scholarship program that can fill the gap for what hope is not covering for most of our students and at the same time participate in statewide coalitions and advocacy efforts to hopefully get you know the state to provide more need-based aid so that the achieve atlanta scholarship doesn't have to exist anymore to stand in that gap right have you had any success or have you have you seen movement or openness in in moving some of the hope dollars or generating new dollars from the state to to create a need based program? So I think there's been a lot of of advocacy efforts by various organizations, and they have definitely raised the conversation. Mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, like with a lot of things, COVID caused a lot of things to be deprioritized. And, you know, we did have a win at the legislature a couple of sessions ago where, you know, there was legislation passed that would create a need-based scholarship program, but it hasn't been funded. And so, you know, so you sort of have some little wins and then, you know, something happens and deprioritize and of course elections matter, but, you know, these efforts are, are continuing, they're still underway. And meanwhile, what we're doing at Achieve Atlanta is we're collecting a lot of data on what happens when you do provide need-based aid Mm -hmm. and how do those numbers, how does that money impact enrollment and also persistence and completion. And we're happy to share that with, with any, you know, groups that are doing advocacy efforts uh, on behalf of this issue. So let's talk about that. Some of the outcomes that you guys have had a little bit more. Can you, can you talk to me about some of, some of the outcomes that you guys have achieved with, with your program, whether it's enrollment or college attainment for, for the participants in, in your services? Sure. And all of this for anyone who's listening is on our website. So we have a full page with all of our results. So with the district, with Atlanta Public Schools over the last six years, we've designed a district-wide college advising program. And and we've seen some really exciting outcomes as as a result of that. So when we started Achieve Atlanta, only about half of APS graduates were enrolling, seamlessly enrolling in college. And and at that time, Atlanta Public Schools high school graduation rate was also not where it needed to be. It was maybe roughly 60%. So a lot we were losing a lot of students at the high school graduation pipeline, and then very few were going on to, to, to college. Yeah. So pre-COVID, right before COVID, we were we had gotten to the point where the district and the work that they had been doing had had raised the graduation rate for seniors to about 80%. And our highest number of seamless enrollment was 62% of APS students were seamlessly enrolling in college. So that's that's roughly, I think it was an 11 percentage point gain in five years, which is, you know, a big deal, especially when you're also increasing the pool of students who are in college. So we were very excited about that. 
sadly, those numbers have taken a hit because of COVID. And I think we're seeing that across the country, but we're working mm-hmm. really hard to re to, to, you know, sort of re, regroup and, and regain a lot of the success that we had. Another big success that we had was only about half of um, seniors were completing the FAFSA and over 70% of APS seniors, again, pre-COVID were completing the FAFSA. I think last year we were somewhere in the mid sixties, which is still great given COVID, but we Mm -hmm. want to get back to those like higher percentages. And so our working now that we're back in person and our advisors are back in the classroom or back in the schools, we're, we're hopeful that those numbers are going to go back up. So more students getting Pell grants, more students going to college. We've given out at this point, $27 million in scholarship dollars to students, and we've supported nearly 4,000 students. So what that has done is more students are persisting from their first to second year. We're starting to see graduates, but also we surveyed our students, our scholars who are graduating, and our students are graduating with significantly less debt because of the Achievement Atlanta scholarship. It's, you know, our four-year scholarship is a $20,000 scholarship. And, and, and we know, and you guys know from the research that if you're ending college with less debt, then, you know, that gives you a, a you're sort of on your way to building wealth much mm-hmm. sooner than if you're still having to pay off student loans. So there's been lots of really positive impacts, but I think one of the biggest ones is just that the idea that college is possible and financially possible is, has now taken root at Atlanta public schools in a way that just didn't exist before. And I think that's, that's so important because to your point, we're, we're actually at a time where just nationally we're seeing students question the value of college more, um, and, and more students saying that they're eliminating a college choice specifically on sticker price. Yep. And so how have you guys kind of, is it, is it the advisor's in the school that that have started to shift that narrative kind of culturally at the high schools or what specifically have you guys done to to address and make that shift for students that it is affordable and it is accessible in Georgia yeah so there's a lot of efforts that have been done by again lots of so i always say it's never just achieve atlanta right like it's there's so many organizations that are working on this so our partners at the district are that provide the college advising are we partner with the college advising core and Mm -hmm. have funded and helped support college advisors across all all of the high schools in APS. We also have helped bring one goal, which is a national organization, college access organization to APS. And then we work with the the counselors at the schools and administrators um, at all of the high schools to implement this college advising program. And one of the things that we um, implemented a couple of years ago, and we, we got a grant from the Gates Foundation to build this, was uh, we, an entire initiative around match and fit. And we use data, we work with the APS data team to pull high school students' college entrance exam scores and their GPA, created an algorithm, looked at all of the publicly available information on colleges and universities, including their cost, and created a platform where a student can log on, it pulls all of their information, and they can see what a target match and reach school is for them, and then see all of the information around the financial aid piece. 
then from that, they can sit down and talk to their advisors, you know, have a much more targeted conversation. And advisors have the information around, okay, if you get the Pell Grant, and if you get the Achieve Atlanta scholarship, you've got this much, you know, dollars already towards a college tuition. And then here's the cost for a public institution in the state of Georgia. And you can start to see that students actually can afford, you know, to go to school. The one of the conversations that we want to now go deeper on is the role of student debt in financing a college education. So Mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of conversation and people have heard it around. You don't want to have too much debt, you know, when you go to college. But unfortunately, I think the pendulum has swung almost too far to the like no debt conversation because some debt is actually okay and really helpful. So when you've got subsidized federal loans that are low interest, it's better sometimes for a student to take out those loans rather than work a 40 hour a week job and then have their academics suffer because they can't actually dedicate the time to study. But those are really complex, emotional, nuanced conversations. And what we're seeing is that our coaches who work with students on the college campus, our our coaching partners are having those conversations. And then we're trying to think about how we also have those conversations with Achieve Atlanta scholars. So because the money conversation is not a one-time conversation, It, it, it has to happen often consistently you know, people's lives change over the course of, you know, four or five, six year college journey. And that's, I think, where we still have a lot of room to grow. Yeah. I think, first of all, I feel like we were separated at birth. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. (laughs) I love everything you're saying. I can't say that enough. And when, as you're talking about that pendulum on, on student debt, that is something that I have advocated for for a really long time that debt when used intelligently to finance a college degree and used responsibly still has one of the best return on investments for our students who complete college. Yeah. And and figuring out how to educate about that especially with the current high school generation who has really been re-traumatized financially several times in that these are individuals who saw saw the impacts of the 08 recession and and housing bubble and now have seen financial impacts of potentially job loss or unemployment during COVID. I'm thinking especially the populations that you guys serve have have been hit really hard by, by both of those times. And so being able to explain to them the value and the benefit of potentially taking on a small amount of debt to be able to really focus on the academic side. We need to figure out how to do that better and smarter. Yeah. And, and I love the idea of both the, like, like the college and the high school need to come together and figure it out. How early are you guys starting to talk to students about that? Not early enough. And what I would say is that, again, you know, we work through partnerships with nonprofits and and systems. And Mm -hmm. at the public school system, you know, I think that we have partners in place who start talking to students about this their junior year. 
And one goal in particular, because theirs is a classroom-based approach, they have a whole, you know, lots of different units, right? Like on, on financing a college education. I think they do a really great job of having this discussion. Unfortunately, we are still in the situation where because of, you know, funding and allocations of funding in, in public schools, when you're talking about freshmen and sophomores, you're still talking about one counselor to every 400 students. Yep. And dealing with, you know, complex issues, especially over the last couple of years, but always, right? And, and where do you carve out the time to start having those financial conversations? So, you know, I think there's lots of folks who are thinking about not just from a college perspective, but from a financial wellness, financial mm-hmm. literacy, how do we start to have that conversation with young people earlier? And I think it's really necessary because especially if you don't come from a family who has a lot of, you know, income to actually even decide, you know, how am I going to like, you know, do I save, do I spend, do I invest? A lot of our students and a lot of the people in this country don't even have that option, right? You're just trying to figure out how you're going to like keep a roof over your head. Yeah. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my bills? And, and so we're, we're in this, in this place of survival and then you get to, you know, college where you're actually having to make some pretty complex financial decisions for the f- first time in your life. And so I think we need to, as a system, do a much better job of educating students much earlier. So I think about my own life and I think about my daughter, my daughter's 13 mm-hmm. and I, you know, though that's a little young to start having some of the complex financial decisions still, she's going to be a freshman in high school next year. And how much does she really know even about our personal finances or ability to afford college? And, and I'm in a very, I'm in a very different situation than, than many of the students, because I'm familiar with the, how we pay for college, how much college costs. And so I'm thinking about how we not only engage students, but we really need to educate and encourage parents to be having financial conversations with their children as well. Yeah. And I think this is a really tricky thing. I think often when we think of financial conversations or decisions, we're thinking about very rational, logical actions, right? Mm -hmm. And when in fact, these are very emotional topics. You know, I think one of the things I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is the impacts of trauma on our student population. And COVID has just added trauma on top of trauma. And one thing that we know just from neuroscience is that when someone is traumatized and being chronically traumatized, that your your cognitive abilities are impacted, right? Mm -hmm. So your ability to make a long-term rational logical decision are negatively impact and you really are in survival mode, right? You're in like that fight or flight and the decisions that you make when you are in that state are about surviving. And so, you know, this is a very layered issue because when parents are chronically stressed and traumatized by the loss of jobs or or sadly, you know, the loss of a loved one during Mm -hmm. this COVID era, trying to figure out how to, you know, keep a family afloat and fed and housed. And then you're trying to have 
future conversations around finances, it just becomes a really difficult thing. And then for them to be able to have that conversation with their students, I think is, or with their young people is also really complicated. So we need to provide supports, right? We need to provide supports. We need to provide resources and, you know, and whether it's through schools or community organizations where parents are, are accessible. Um, I think like though I applaud anyone doing those efforts right now because it's such a necessary thing. Yeah. I'm actually trying to write about a very, very similar topic right now. And it's, I'm trying to figure out how, so I'm a former director of financial aid, right? So I kind of come at this from a, from the college perspective, but also a parent. So it's how can we start to build a better trusting and open relationship with students so that they are comfortable and open to having these conversations so that those of us that are in the financing space can actually help more. Because yeah. one of one of the things that's really hard, and, and you know this, is we're trying to work through some of these challenges with students. You're right. We get into really personal stuff, right? We're talking we're talking finances and um, affordability, but we're also talking family family support systems. Do yeah. do parents support them financially, emotionally, in going to college? We're talking about family structures, divorce, marriage, living together, right? Taxes, and so sometimes I think even though we have the best intentions in trying to get information from students to try and help them get more money. Sometimes I feel like the approach and the lack of relationship is causing more traumatization to these students. And they're actually pulling back instead of engaging. Yeah. I mean, Amy, like I so wish that every financial aid advisor had your perspective on this because, and you know, I, it's been a long time since I was in college, but I, I, me was, too. you know, I, I had student loans mm-hmm. um, and I was a Pell recipient and, and then I went to law school and I had law school loans as well. And I remember being afraid to go to the financial aid office because in law school, because there was one officer who had a very particular reputation and we just all thought she was mean you know, and there was no way that I was going to share intimate, you know, uh, details about, you know, my financial situation and, and, you know, family's ability to, to help, et cetera, with somebody that I did not trust. And so I think that is really like, that could be revolutionary if like the whole approach to financial advising and like, the training around like the very human aspects of that could be in place. And there are some places that are doing some innovative work on that. So Georgia Mm -hmm. state has this student financial center that is just operating on a completely different model. And I, so I, I do think that there are some exciting new practices emerging, but yeah, this is not just talking about money. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, the community. So the, the financial aid community in particular is doing a good job, I think, in about starting to have the conversations, starting to be more aware. But now that we've started that, we really need to start taking action and 
and kind of turning the ship. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna lose just a whole generation of students. And and to your point, the number of jobs that require a bachelor's degree and the generational impact of of getting a degree on on upward mobility of our students, it's not something we can continue to to lag behind. So yeah, how we how we flip that. And and part of it's just how the industry has been shaped. We've, you know, the Department of Education has outsourced all of the yicky compliance complicated elements to institutions and are only punitive, right? They only focus on mistakes that colleges make, which forces a mindset of being very conservative from yeah. a regulatory perspective yeah. and, mm-hmm. and less humanistic. Yep. So, oh, if we could solve that problem in I 30 know. minutes, <laughs> wowza. <laughs> I know. I think that's the problem with like many of our systems and, and, but yes, like that, that would be a big win if we could figure that one out. Yeah, totally. Oh, I feel like my head is spinning. There's so many directions I want to go and I just want to go, I'll fix it now. Yeah. <laughs> I think for, for me, the biggest thing is though around that partnership across, I, I love what you guys are doing across the organizations. And I think I just want schools to hear how impactful kind of approach can be on the students. So we've talked a little bit about how things have maybe shifted for students in COVID from, from, but what changes have you seen in how, or what, how have you guys changed approach in how you engage students? Have things changed at all? How is that kind of working out and what do you think is good and is here to stay? And what do you think we should like stop doing immediately? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll tell you what, what changed for us, especially at the beginning, you know, and at the height of the, you know, COVID crisis, we decided that we needed to be much more intrusive in how we engage students. So literally picking up the phone and calling students to check in on them and see how mm-hmm. they were doing. We also augmented our mental health supports and engaged a student assistance program and provided students with up to six, you know, therapeutic sessions to deal with, you know, some of the issues that they were going through. And then, but we also had to just reach students where they were. So social media became a big part of our strategy for reaching students. And Mm -hmm. we had to re-strategize how we were going to use our social media platforms, what kinds of messages, how we used incentives, how we used competitions to engage students in the conversations that we needed to have with them. We created online communities through Slack, through Zoom sessions that we invited students to participate in. And, and even like use different modalities, like starting with just a deep breathing exercise with students, you know, to kind of help them just like bring their heart rates down and yeah. conversations that they needed to have. And all of that has been really, I think, a positive thing because we had to get much more creative mm-hmm. about how we were going to engage students. The flip side of that is the over-reliance on technology for connection, right? So I think technology can be a good 
like gateway to that connection, but you still need that human to human interaction. We still need to be able to build trust and relationships. And so I think that the idea that now you can do everything through Zoom and you never have to gather, you know, and like actually like, you know, just have that organic conversation but we're anxious to get back to that because that helps students create the sense of belonging on a campus, which we know is so critical for their success. Yeah, I think even as a business, we, I struggle with, with that same balance. I mean, I love, I love the commute to my office, which is literally walking across my house now. But at the same time, there is so much from a relationship standpoint that gets built just by sitting in the same room mm-hmm. with colleagues. And so figuring, yeah, figuring out how to use, still continue to use the technology as a component, but move back a little bit more to some of those in-person elements. I think all of us, all of us can, can learn from because we falsely assume that because we're looking at the person now through a video, that it's the same as being in person. And it's not. Yeah. So two more quick questions. If you could, you got a magic wand and you can put any one resource in place or change one thing in the high school to college pipeline, what would it be? Oh my goodness. You only get one and it it can't be free college. Okay. One thing in the high school to college pipeline. Oh, Amy. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think that it would be what we what we've been talking about, right? This this magical module or experience that would help students really map out their financial plan, this comprehensive financial plan for how they're going to pay for college and live throughout that experience, right? And, and which includes work and loans and scholarships and how you're going to live and, you know, and how you're going to access emergency aid when like something happens. Like if, if we could figure out a way to do that seamlessly and effectively, I think that could be a game changer. Yeah. I love that. I've played with this idea, and I don't know if I've said this out loud in public, but I've played with this idea of wondering what happens if we eliminated merit-based scholarship completely Mm. and only went to need-based. Yeah. I don't know, but that's, that's one of, as, as, as I asked the question, I was thinking about that in my head. I'm like, I wonder if this would work. (laughs) I think it it would be a really fascinating experiment. Right. And, and thinking about like, again, what is the, what are we trying to achieve and what's the purpose of college? Right. And, and are we putting our money in the right places to achieve that goal? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and I think you guys are already exploring that some in Georgia, given, given kind of the, the state alignment of, of state funds and Mm -hmm. and how they're doing that. Wow. This was so amazing. And the fastest 35 minutes of my week. I could talk to you, could talk to you all day and have really, really appreciated your insights and you sharing what you guys have, have put in place with Achieve Atlanta. How can our audience get in touch with you and learn more about what you guys have done? 
Yeah. So we are, well, our, first of all, our website, achieveatlanta.org. We've got lots of information there. Um, we also have very active social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And so you can follow Achieve Atlanta. I'm also pretty active on those channels, especially Twitter and LinkedIn. So, you know, anyone who's interested in you know, having deeper conversations around this definitely would appreciate the, the followers as well. And we're just always excited to talk to people who are as passionate as we are about helping young people get what they need to be able to be successful in life. That is amazing. Thank you so much. We will, for any listener, we will make sure to link all of those resources in the show notes. I hope that everybody has enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. I would encourage you strongly to share this episode with colleagues and friends as, as, as they can definitely learn from things that Achieve Atlanta and Tina has shared with us today. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time on the Higher Ed Shift. 